I'll start as I've been doing with a couple of uh, questions for the kids this morning. The first question, I'll pause for a second so you can get something to write if you want. Why is death harder for people without God to face? The second question is, who will rise first when Jesus comes back? Before we get to our passage this morning, uh, obviously I'm not all that old, but particularly connected with some of the things I've been involved with in ministry the last few years, I've been to a lot of funerals because I did a lot of visiting with folks in assisted living and who couldn't come out to church anymore, just older folks in the church. And so there were a good number of funerals in the last few years that I attended. There were also those of some family members, particularly of those people. Some of them were not Christians. And when you go to those two types of funerals, a funeral of someone who was a Christian or a funeral of someone who is not a Christian, you notice differences between the two. For the person who was a Christian, certainly there is sorrow. I mean, there is a sense of loss, of separation. That's what death is. And yet, there can also be joy and rejoicing and looking forward to seeing that person again. But at the funeral of someone who doesn't know God, there is a sense of loss and a sense of grief and a sense that I'll never see that person again. And depending on what the person believes about death, all sorts of, of wrong ideas. Why does this difference exist? I want us to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 and see how Christians grieve differently from those without God. The first thing I want us to see from this passage is that we should not grieve, assuming that you're trusting in Christ today, we should not grieve like those without hope because you have the truth. We see this from verse 13. It says, We do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. To explain this further, I would put it this way. Uncontrollable grief, grief as those who have no hope, that sort of grief comes if your knowledge is incomplete. Notice what it says there, if you are uninformed. Paul says to the Thessalonians, I don't want you to be uninformed. So if your knowledge is lacking, if it's incomplete, you will most likely have this sort of inconsolable, uncontrollable grief. What does the Bible say about death. Well, it says, first of all, that all people die. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed to men once to die, and after this comes the judgment. Why is there death? Well, death is connected with sin. Romans 5 says that death came into the world through the sin of Adam, and so all sin, and so all die. But then today, we try to ignore that fact. A goal of modern medicine is to extend life as long as possible. And I just want to ponder that for a moment, that that can be both a blessing and a curse. It can be a blessing for the person who uses 
that extra time well, it can be a curse for that person who sees long years drag out but has no purpose. But the fact is, however long we are able to extend life, at some point, we all face death. And this is troubling for us because we can't see what happens next. Is death different, for example, when a pet dies than when a person dies? We see similar things. A, a lack of breath, a lack of the, the light in the eyes that indicates life, and yet, as it says in Ecclesiastes 3.21, who knows if the spirit of an animal goes downward or the spirit of a man ascends upward. We know because the Bible tells us that there's a difference, but just looking at the circumstances, we can't understand the difference just by observation. We might also have strange ideas about what happens after death because it's been popular in the last 30 or 40 years, but especially in the last 10 or 15 for there to be all sorts of books published. Five minutes in heaven, ten minutes in hell, those sorts of things. And when we see these kinds of books, they make us wonder because we're curious. We can't see, and we, so we say, maybe this person saw something, so I want to know what they saw. And I would, guard, I would encourage you to guard your thinking and your heart against those kinds of ideas in this sense. There are a number of them who have admitted after the fact, after they made a great deal of money off of unsuspecting people, that they were lying. They just made it all up because they wanted attention. And for those who think that what they described was real, again, I would caution you, experiences apart from Scripture, particularly contrary to Scripture, we have to watch out for those. And we need to be, even be careful of so-called experiences even if they agree with Scripture, because if the Bible is enough, we don't need those other experiences. Paul had stern words for those who made up things particularly contrary to what the Bible teaches. He said this, If we or an angel from heaven should preach another gospel, not just it's a bad idea, not just, eh, don't listen to it, he said, let him be accursed. May God curse that person if he makes up something contrary to what the scriptures say. So we need to be careful that we're not believing ideas that people have made up about death and what comes next. Not only do we wonder what comes next, we wonder if those who die will have missed out. And this seems to be some of the concern that stands behind the passage this morning because the Thessalonians seem to have an idea, and I would, I would base this as well on some things that Paul will say in 2 Thessalonians, that there's this fear that they've be forgotten, that they've missed out on something, perhaps the coming of Christ. I don't know if you've watched it. I'm not recommending it per se, but uh, Pixar and Disney capitalized on this last year with their animated film Coco. And it led viewers to accept false ideas about the afterlife by using elements from traditional Hispanic culture practices and beliefs in a feel-good sort of way. And so maybe you've seen something like that and you say, oh, you know, maybe that's an interesting idea. You know, sort of get a warm-hearted feeling, everything works out and everyone's happy and, and the, the spirits of the ancestors who have passed on are pleased and so are the people who are still living. And these kinds of beliefs are common in a number of cultures. I mean, ancestor worship is nothing new 
but it's interesting to see it just packaged so easy to accept sort of way in our culture around us. You say, well, I, I don't, I wouldn't buy into that, but what beliefs and ideas have you absorbed from your family, from things you've read, from society around us that are incorrect? Do you fear that those who have died are going to miss out because you have a misconception about what death and the life after means? And as I said a few moments, uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, there's a push in our society to make memories, to leave a legacy behind, those sorts of ideas. And I would just say this, the legacy that you and I leave behind ought to be more than stuff that will break and rot or experiences that will be taken away from those we love someday as they grow older or face dementia or things like that. If that is all that our lives are, if that is all that our hope of being remembered is, if that's all the afterlife is, that's an empty thing to live for. Not only can uncontrollable grief happen if your knowledge is partial or incomplete, it can also happen if your knowledge is wrong. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about some wrong ideas that had been going around in the Thessalonian church, and he seeks to correct those ideas in his second letter. But I think some of that idea perhaps can be found here as well in verse 13. It's possible that you might invent your own ideas about death. You say, you know what, I'm not going after what everybody else says, but here's my idea about what happens. There's a story that I read at some point in school, and it was uh, particularly striking. It was a short story by John Updike called Pigeon Feathers. And in this story, a boy has a vision of death. And this was his idea. Death is a long hole in the ground, no wider than your body, down which you are drawn while the white faces above recede. You try to reach them, but your arms are pinned. Shovels pour dirt over you. There you will be forever, in an upright position, blind and silent, and no one will remember you in time, and you will never be called by any angel. And so as he says this, it's a gruesome and a horrible picture, but this is just what he came up with in his head. And so he says, I want to I try to figure this out. And so what does he do next? His parents are too caught up in things going on in life with work and how to manage the farm that he's on in this particular story. And so he goes to the pastor of his local church and he says, what about death? And he gives them this unhelpful response. You might think of heaven this way, as the way in which the goodness that Abraham Lincoln did lives after him. And there are people who will say trite-sounding things like that that are empty and worthless. So then later on in the story, he's sent into the barn to kill some pigeons that are ruining furniture that they had stored out there and eating grain and all that sort of thing. And as he goes to pick up the birds that he's shot and, and to look at them, he marvels at the way that they are designed and he says this, He was robed in this certainty that the God who had lavished such craft upon these worthless birds would not destroy his whole creation by refusing to let him live forever. Again, there's elements of truth to what he's saying, and yet there's elements of error as well. Is that the best hope that we can come up with? I think because God obviously put such care into making the world around us that, that I'll probably be okay. Is that the best that we can do? 
So perhaps you come up with your own ideas, or perhaps you've been misled by someone intentionally or accidentally. Perhaps someone has told you, this life is it. So live for whatever you can do now, because the physical, the material world, that's all there is. So live for that. Perhaps someone has told you, you need to find some kind of spiritual enlightenment, because that's going to be the path to a better life in your next life, or becoming united with the universe, or these sorts of ideas. Perhaps someone has told you, do your best, and then maybe you'll only end up in purgatory and suffer for a little while, and then you'll make it to heaven. All of these are false ideas. So Paul says Christians shouldn't grieve like those without hope. Why not? Because we have the truth, but also because grieving differently is possible when you remember the resurrection. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now the Gospels teach us that Jesus lived. Paul doesn't specifically mention it here, but we know that he believed it because he says it in other places as well. And the fact that Jesus lived, there's two important points that I think we should remember in connection with this. Jesus is God and Jesus is man. How do we know that both are true? John 8, 58, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am, claiming to himself being God. And we know that that's what he was doing because what happens right after that? The Jewish people try to stone him to death for blasphemy. So Jesus said, I am God. And 1 Timothy 2, 5 reminds us he is also man, that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So Jesus lived as God and man. And Jesus lived, furthermore, a perfect life. Hebrews 4.15 said he was tempted in every point, just as we are, but did not sin. That's important because the living came before the dying and the rising again. Going back to verse 14, if we believe Jesus died and rose again. Paul is arguing from a greater thing to a lesser thing. If this is true about Jesus, then it is also true about those who follow Jesus. So we know from the scripture that Jesus died. And what do we know about his death? Matthew 20, 28 says, His death was in the place of sinners. He said, I came to give my life a ransom for many. What did Jesus' death accomplish? It accomplished many things. It satisfied God's wrath. God has wrath against sin and those who practice sin. And Jesus' death appeased that wrath for those that God would call to himself. And and, uh, and bring to salvation. Jesus' death atoned. It paid for sin. Someone had to pay for sin. God couldn't just sweep it under the rug. God couldn't just say, oh, it's okay. God had to deal with it because the justice of his character demanded that sin be dealt with. Jesus' death also offered forgiveness. Not just something over here, just an abstract idea, but actual, real forgiveness for those who believe in him. So Jesus died, but Jesus also rose, as it says here in the verse. Why did he rise? A lot of times we look at the Bible and we say that he did rise, but we often don't pause and think about why. Why did he rise? He rose because he never sinned, and so he could not be held by death. It's like if you got arrested for something, and then it was shown that you weren't guilty for it, can they keep you? No, because there's no claim against you. Jesus never sinned, and so death could not hold him because death is the consequence of sin, and sin has no claim on Jesus. 
Jesus also rose to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament, to defeat death. Think back to Genesis 3 and verse 15. What did God promise Adam and Eve? That He was sending one who would crush the serpent's head. That the serpent would bruise him on the heel. He would have a temporary victory. And then his head would be crushed. His power would be defeated. And that's what happened on the cross. When Jesus rose, it showed that that victory over sin, over death, was certain. And so in doing this, he fulfilled all of the promises that God kept making to his people all throughout the Old Testament. Furthermore, Jesus rose to make salvation and resurrection possible for his people. Not just for himself, but for his people. There's a passage in Scripture that says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who believe. What does that mean? There's others coming after him. Who are they? The apostles, the early church, down through church history, even us today. And so, why did Jesus rise? Jesus rose because death could not hold him to fulfill God's promises in defeating death and to make salvation and resurrection possible for his people. And so then that leads us to the second half of the verse. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Those who belong in Jesus will also be raised. If God raised Jesus, he can certainly raise the people who trust in Jesus. They will be raised to keep God's promise to God the Father. If you consider John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40, it says in the end of that section, I shall lose none of all he has given me, but will raise them up at the last day. And so if Jesus did not raise up his people at the last day, then the promise he made to God the Father would have fallen short, would have failed, and Jesus would have sinned. We know he does not sin. We know that he keeps his promises, and so he will raise us up in the last day. They will be raised to keep Jesus' promise to his disciples. Remember what he said to them in John eleven twenty six: The one who lives and believes in me will never die. Again, if Jesus failed to do that, he would have failed to keep his promise to his disciples as well. So we grieve differently because we have the truth. We grieve differently because of the hope of the resurrection. Finally, we grieve differently because of the promise of the rapture. This is the larger portion of the text this morning. So I would encourage you from these verses to look to the rapture. Now when I say rapture, you won't find that term in this passage. It's a term that people have used to describe what these verses are talking about. And it is different from the second of coming of Christ to the earth in this sense. The second coming is described in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 1, which we'll get to shortly. But this describes something that goes before all of those things. Let me briefly outline for you the difference between the rapture, what's described in these verses, and the second coming that's described at the beginning of chapter 5. The rapture is, according to this passage, for believers. Because you see throughout this passage, those who are in Christ, the, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, the dead in Christ, those of us who are alive and remain, we are, will, are those who are in Christ. We see this all throughout this passage. This is for believers. Furthermore, it says this is in the clouds. This is something where we are gathered in the air. 
it says in uh, verse 17, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the location is different as well. It is a time of blessing. There will be rejoicing when God's people are gathered with Him and, and united with the one that they believed in and hoped in. And finally, tribulation comes after this point. And that's part of the judgment that's poured out between this and when Christ returns to the earth. Now the second coming, when Christ physically comes to earth, what's the difference in that? That is primarily focused toward unbelievers. It's coming to the earth. It's a time of judgment, of punishment. We'll see that particularly in 2 Thessalonians 1 when we get there in a few weeks. It is a time after which the kingdom follows as Jesus defeats his enemies and rules over his people. Now, to be clear, blessing for God's people is a necessary side effect of God punishing the wicked. And so you can't entirely disconnect the two things. And yet, I think as we'll see this morning, what's described here in these verses is different from what's described in the next chapter and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. How does Paul describe this? He says, Jesus is coming. First of all, we see in verse 15, this we say to you, by the word of the Lord. What's his point for saying, by the word of the Lord? Isn't, aren't all the things that he's saying to them, by the word of the Lord? Yes, but he's stressing here the certainty of what it is that he is saying. You see, especially in the Old Testament, for example, in First and Second Kings, you see that the word of the Lord is fulfilled. That phrase is used repeatedly in those books. Uh, for example, there's a prophet who's told to go and speak to one of the kings. And God said to the prophet, don't eat or drink anything until you get home. Go to the king, give your message, go home. Don't stop on the way, don't eat or drink, or judgment will fall on you. What happens? He goes, he speaks to the king, he warns the king, he leaves. Another guy comes to him and says, hey, I have a message from God for you. He said you should come to my house and have supper with me. So what does he do? He does it. And what happens? God sends a wild animal to kill him. We say, why? Because over and over again, there's this emphasis that the word of the Lord is certain. The word of the Lord will be fulfilled. It's not used in a negative sense here in this verse, but it is used in the sense of it being certain, and so believe in it. What else does it say here? Not only is it certain, we're going to skip the next phrase, and we'll come back to it in a moment, but look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Now, think about this. We looked at Matthew 28 in the Sunday school hour this morning, and it talked about the fact that Jesus ascended into heaven, and he gives this great commission to his disciples, and so, Jesus is in heaven. So when, I says, when it says here, He will descend from heaven, He's descending because He has ascended to heaven. Ephesians 1 describes this further. It says, Jesus is exalted in a position of triumph because of what He did on the cross. Because He was raised from the dead. And so, He's in heaven with God the Father. And this passage says, He will descend from heaven. It's accompanied by three things. It says, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Why a shout? How many of you have ever been really excited about something? Perhaps you've been at a, 
at a baseball game or watching your kids play sports, however well they did that, and you're watching them, and, and you get excited, and you cheer for them, and, and there's a shout. Is this a time of, of rejoicing, of excitement, of proclamation? Yes, I think that's why it's accompanied with a shout. Why the voice of the archangel? The archangel are those who serve God, as all the angels do, and they are announcing Jesus is coming to gather His people. And why the trumpet of God? What does a trumpet do? A trumpet does many things, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if the trumpet sound is unclear, the army is not going to be gathered for battle. What's God doing when the trumpet is blown? He's gathering His people to Himself, His followers. Those who will be with Him on one side while those who follow Satan will be on the other side. And so Jesus will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And then what will happen next? The dead in Christ will rise first. Look at verse 16 in the second half. It says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now what does dead mean? Dead means those who are no longer alive, those who through what we know as death, have been separated, They're the immortal part of them, from their bodies. But he also stresses another word here. He says those, the dead in Christ will rise first. And in Christ means those who belong to Christ, who believe in Christ, who follow Christ. Why is this important? Because Paul wants us to ask ourselves, am I in Christ? This is important because there's many people who have an idea that you're in a right relationship with God simply because of things that you do. One of the really common things, particularly for veterans like in World War II, there were a lot of sermons preached at their funerals where people would say, so-and-so was going to heaven because he was a good soldier. And that is wonderful that he was a good soldier, and we are thankful for those who serve as soldiers, and yet... That does not get you into heaven. And it is false hope to tell someone that that gets you into heaven. I had a family member, someone in my wife's family, and the guy that preached at his funeral said, he's a good soldier, he's gone to heaven. The Bible says nothing like that in the pages of Scripture. You are not in Christ if you are a nice person. There are other people that I've talked to and they said, well, well, how do you know you're right with God? Well, you try to be a nice person. You do good things to people. If you do bad things, you say that you're sorry, and then you'll be fine. God doesn't accept, I tried hard, as enough to accept you into heaven. He says in Matthew 5, 48, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And who among us lives up to that? You are not in Christ simply because you are here in church. I'm glad that you're here in church. Keep coming to church. But going to church doesn't get you to heaven, doesn't give you a right relationship with God. Because there's a lot of people who go to church who have no relationship with God. You are not in Christ if you give money to the poor. Sometimes there's a misunderstanding of what Jesus said to the rich young ruler when he says, how can I be right with you? He said, go sell all that you have and come follow me. And we latch on to the go sell all that you have and think that that gets us into heaven. But what Jesus was saying was, 
That's your step of repentance. You love money, set it aside, come follow me. Like we looked at at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 1, turn away from idols, come serve Christ. That's what the rich young ruler needed to do. And so sometimes we say, well, if I just do nice things for people, if I give money to the poor, or we do some kind of religious activity, if I say prayers, if I attend some kind of services, if I do these things, that makes me right with God. But Paul, I think, would say on the basis of a number of other passages, none of those things mean that you are in Christ. So what makes you in Christ? You are only in Christ if you have turned from your sin to serve God, to follow after Him. So again, I would ask you, have you ever had a time when you turned from your sin? And at the end of the day, the important thing is not that you have the date and the time and the year written down on a piece of paper in your Bible or something like that, because God's not going to check for that at the gate of heaven and say, this is what you have to have to get in. I had a friend when I was in high school. He hit his head on something. He had amnesia. He said, I couldn't tell you the day or the time when I trusted in Christ, but I know what I'm believing right now. And that's the question. What are you believing right now? What are you hoping in right now? Is it something else or is it Jesus? And so if you say, I'm not sure, if you say, I don't know if I'm in Christ, I would say, I would love to talk to you more about that after the service. Any of us would be glad to talk to anyone who's not certain about what it means to be in Christ. So the dead in Christ will rise first, but the living in Christ will be gathered second. He says, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Why do I say that they are the living in Christ? Because Paul says in verse 13, he's writing to brethren. He uses that term to describe fellow believers. And so we who are brethren, we who are hearing his words, he says, we will be gathered second. It says in verse 7, the verse, uh, Paul makes an important point here. For those who feared that those who had died and gone before had missed out on something, what does he say? Not only have they not missed out, they get to go ahead of you in the line. It's a really important thing for kids about who gets to go first, Right? And even as adults, even though we don't admit it, we have the same thought in our heads, right? And so sometimes we assign importance to who gets to go first. And so in this sense, Paul, the connection is Paul is saying, if you think that those who have gone before have missed out, they haven't. In fact, they have already been in God's presence and they will be gathered together with him first. But that doesn't mean that you miss out either because the living in Christ will receive the same blessing. He says in verse 17, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. This is where that word rapture comes from, being caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And I think that this is important for us to remember, that what makes heaven heaven is not the place, but the person. We will be with the Lord. Or as Paul says in another place, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So why is it Important that we have a relationship with Christ here on earth so that we can continue that relationship with Him in eternity. So Christians ought to grieve differently because we have the truth, because we know about the resurrection, that is our hope, because we're looking to the rapture, the day of Christ's return for His people. But Paul doesn't stop there. What are we supposed to do if we know what it says in verses 13 to 17? 
Verse 18 says this, Comfort one another with these words. And before I get there, let me just ask you some questions. Do you know the truth about death and life after, or are you just guessing? Don't be like the guy in the story that I described who was just guessing. Fictional story, but there's a lot of people in that same situation. Do you hope in the resurrection, or do you hope in something else? Sometimes we say, well, that's down the road. I don't need to worry about that. I don't need to live for that. We need to hope in it now. We need to be believing and trusting in that. Do you look to the rapture, or are you looking for something else? A lot of times people say, you know what, here's my list of things I need to do, and if God comes back before any of those things happen, I would be really disappointed. I'll admit I've had that thought, you know, the night before we are going to get married. I was like, I'm going to be disappointed if God comes back and we don't get to get married. I was also going to be disappointed if the snowstorm that dropped eight inches the day before was going to interfere, but fortunately it didn't. Um, And so there's a part where there are things that we look forward to. Getting married, having a family, having grandchildren, retirement, whatever else, all these things we look forward to in life, they're not bad to look forward to, but would you be more disappointed about missing that thing or about missing Jesus coming back? And something we ought to think about. And then getting back to verse 18. If you have the right answers to the first three questions, what are you doing with that truth? Do you write it on a piece of paper? Stick it in your Bible? I know that for next time. If I, someone asks me a Bible trivia question, I can give the right answer. Or do you take that truth and talk to someone around you who is facing difficulty and say, Hey, you need to fight sin because your hope is in the resurrection, not in this life. Hey, you need to look to the rapture, not be caught up in all the things in this life. Again, Ecclesiastes would urge us to enjoy food and family and work and all those things, and yet, it's not all there is. Or someone's going through a trial and a difficulty, and they say, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. What hope do you point them to? Do you say an empty phrase that sounds nice, like it'll be okay, or everything will work out? Humanly speaking, that may not happen. But no matter how difficult of a trial we face, up to and including death, we have hope and we need to share that hope with each other. And so do you do what Paul says, comfort one another with these words? Because again, the point of it is not to say, I can get an A on a test and write out all of the details about all these sorts of things. It's not pride, it's serving one another. And for that matter, that's why God gave us all the truths in the Bible, not so we would just know them, but so that we would do them. When we were looking at Matthew 28 earlier this morning, what does it say? Not that you know all the commands that Jesus gave, but that you obey them. And so we need a comfort. We need to encourage one another with these words and other words from Scripture that we would follow God. Furthermore, we need to point the people around us to the hope that the gospel offers and say, hey, why do Christians grieve differently from people who don't follow God? Take them to this passage. Show them plead with them that they would believe. Because if not, 
then they're going to be the ones who will face God's judgment when Jesus returns to the earth as the conquering king. And so that concludes our time looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so now we're going to take the Lord's Supper. So if I could have the deacons please come forward.